taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Coming to you from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, and Ronan, Montana, we welcome you to tonight's podcast. We first of all want to begin by reading Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32. It says, For I take no pleasure in anyone's death. This is the declaration of the Lord God. So repent and live. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of Christian apologetics while taking the truth into the arena of ideas. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast. My name is Curtis Evelo. I'm joined by Brian Chilton. As we answer your most pressing apologetic theological questions of the day. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome into the conversation with Brian and I. So let's welcome aboard Brian. Hello, Brian. Hey, Brother Curtis, how you doing? Doing good, doing good. Yeah, so uh, as we start the as we started the recording of the podcast, I get a text from my from my pastor saying, "Oh, oops, I forgot you were podcasting tonight." <laughs> so I'm like, "Yeah, buddy, I am." <laughs> oh, good stuff. I love that guy. Hilarious. So, anyway, so we had a we had a, one item you wanted to kind of discuss uh, discuss with us. Um, real quickly, and then uh, I guess we had a question, so let's go ahead and talk about the uh, the the item, the conversation that you had. Yeah, and and uh, I want to mention uh, I had a conversation with an individual this past week on social media. I don't want to mention the person's name because I don't want the person to think that I'm calling them out or anything. But I, I just want to just want to explain. We had a, a conversation over a misunderstanding pertaining to Gary Habermas's minimal facts. Uh, there are some people mm. who apparently believe that the minimal facts uh, somehow or another um, causes a person to disbelieve in the other facts of the Bible uh, by, by claiming that the minimal facts are the only facts that can be believed in, instead of the rest of the facts of or the, or the um, propositions of, of the Bible. And I just want to say, I mean, this, this seems to be an ongoing thing. I mean, it's not just this individual. I've heard other people say, say similar things. The minimal facts is a, an argument used from what uh, based upon what the consensus of historical scholarship gives us pertaining to the life of Jesus. As Gary Habermas says, it's a heads I win, tails you lose conundrum because the consensus of scholarship, in other words, these details about Jesus' life are so strong that the vast majority of scholars believe them and even those who aren't necessarily Christians. And so, yeah, I'm just going to say that. So, I mean, even Bart Ehrman will will concede these details as well. Um, mm-hmm. So, so the six minimal facts that you see presented in the classic minimal facts argument are are facts that are held to agreement of greater than a consensus of greater than ninety percent. But those aren't the only minimal facts that he use he, he uses. In fact, the empty tomb is the six plus one. The six minimal facts plus one. The empty tomb is held uh, by consensus of greater than seventy five percent. But in his book Historical Jesus, he presents even more, like twelve minimal facts that holds mm-hmm. a consensus great of greater than fifty yeah. percent. Uh, which that's what you need a consensus greater than fifty percent. So if you have a consensus of scholars 
across the board who are even uh, holding to something to a degree of 60%, that's still pretty strong. So what he's doing is using the, the facts that the majority of scholars will give us, the consensus of historians will give us, and using that as a launch pad to defend other truths of Jesus. So in other words, mm, if you were to mm-hmm. say this, you know, the disciples saw something that led them to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. Paul and James, enemies of Jesus, were transformed by the resurrection. They, they believed it was a resurrection. And you go back and show, well, the hallucination doesn't describe this. Well, then this is a good reason to believe that the resurrection happened. And if the resurrection happened, he does this now in some of his other works. If the resurrection happens, then that confirms everything Jesus said and did throughout his, throughout his ministry. That also would right. confirm other things concerning the virgin birth of Jesus. That would even go and confirm the prophecies written about Jesus. So again, it begins with the minimal facts showing how and why you can believe in the resurrection, that something happened on the first Easter resurrection day. And from that building a case from ground zero up, building it upon a, a historical foundation found in these six minimal facts. So it's not de- he's mm-hmm. not denying other propositions about the Bible. He's not denying right. other details. He's using this as a means, a, a, a scaffold, so to speak, to be, or, or a, a foundation may be yeah. a better word. Yeah. No, a scaffolding, I like that idea because you're able to to get to different levels of yeah. the scripture, I like that. I like that picture. Yeah, it's a scaffolding. Yeah, I so, totally so yeah, like, like a scaffolding using to get to other details of scripture. So it's it's mm-hmm. cli- kind of like the classical argument in reverse. So instead of, instead of starting with God arguing down to the resurrection, you start at ground zero right. with the minimal facts, what we can know by consensus of scholars, and building a case from that. Right, and. I'm, I'm going to paraphrase Frank Turek on this one, but I, I remember him saying if Jesus rose to the, from the grave and we got evidence that he did, um, verifying that, then essentially we get the Old Testament thrown in for free because Jesus verified the 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 things in the Old Testament. You know, the the, the law, the, the the prophets, the 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 Psalms, all that. Yeah, so yeah. what's what's interesting to me is, you know, if if that is the case, then what what would be the argument that that he's that Habermas is discounting all those other things when you're basically saying rather than Genesis being the base, we're saying. Um, we're saying the resurrection is the base, and then look at Genesis going, hey, look, that's Jesus verified that, and it's true. I, and that's exactly what Habermas does. If you get his book, Historical Jesus, I have it somewhere with all these books I have strode out with uh, <laughs> getting ready for my dissertation. I have like four <laughs> or five piles of books right now uh, around my computer. But... Uh, <laughs> My wife's going to have a fit by the time this is all said and done. I know she is. But anyhow, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's basically a misunderstanding. It's a misunderstanding of what he's trying to do. But the, the, the historical Jesus book he gives, he lays out information pertaining to that. And then he also uses uh, the resurrection as a means not only of proving the teachings of Jesus, also the um, using it as, as a basis to 
prove the Old Testament because Jesus quotes the scriptures numerous times. In fact, Deuteronomy is his favorite book. Isaiah and the Psalms, they're the second. They come right after Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is quoted more than any other book in the Bible by Jesus. Um, So that's confirmed what Jesus teaches. And then also he turns it around to say that what does this tell us about heaven? What does this tell us about eternity? But it all starts with minimal facts and then building a case from that, as we mentioned, the scaffolding. Hmm. Yeah. And I love the picture of the scaffolding. I really do. I think that's a great, I think that's a great uh, outline. It, you know, it helps us see the skeleton of how, um, how it's formed, and then we can reach to those other levels. like that. I like that view. Oh, that's thank that's you. pretty good. You should write a book about that. <laughs> I have to add it to my list. <laughs> Not like you're busy on anything else. I've got a growing <laughs> list of books I want to write. So we have a question from uh, Jim, Jim Bain. Yeah. Do you want to answer that? Sure. Do you mind reading it? I don't. I don't have it in front of me. The, yeah. yeah. The the email says, "Good afternoon, Brian." I thoroughly enjoy your website as well as your podcast. I'm curious if you can point me to some reading material on congruism. I have wrestled with sovereignty and the responsibility for quite a while. Thank you in advance, Jim. Well, Jim, will you, uh, we certainly will be praying for you on this, and uh, I'm sure Brian has a bit of an answer for you. Yes, yeah, so congruism, and, and thank you, Jim, for the email. Uh, we, we appreciate you watching or listening to the podcast, and we appreciate you uh, reading the articles at Bellator Christi. Uh, right now, as far as resources, we, there's not a lot of resources out there, but I am going to mention some some books you can pick up about congruism, if you'd like, from the primary uh, primary resources. I do hope, again, <laughs> talking about a queue of books, I do hope to eventually write a book on congruism and describe the difference between that and classic Molinism. But for, congruism was essentially established by Francisco, the Spanish, um, I think he's Jesuit if I'm not mistaken, Spanish theologian Francisco Suarez. Uh, the, Molinism w- was having problems in being accepted in the church. Uh, the, the, the question had to do with effectual grace. So was it just simply that a person responds, or is faith a gift of God? Does God move into the person's life, even with the um, aspect of mental knowledge? And so Francisco Suarez writes voluminously on the issue. Um, In fact, I've got two of his books right here, Curtis. One is on creation, conservation, and concurrence. And this is one that really goes into the issues concerning um, uh, congruism the best, and this is Metaphysical Disput- Disputations 20-22. through 22. But he also writes uh, other works on the law, and here's the one I wanted to show you. This Hold big, on, how big was that book? Does that book look like three, 400 pages? This one, the first yeah, one? That, yeah. The first one is not that bad. It's like 200, it's a translation of the the Spanish work. Uh, this one is like uh, 248, 249. Not too bad. Oh. But then you have this other one on the law. This mega monster. <laughs> Jeez, oh man. <laughs> Which is something oh, like goodness. a thousand pages. pages. A thousand. Oh my goodness, are you kidding me? <laughs> it was a thousand fifty pages. Yeah, a thousand fifty pages. So 
you can use this as a paperweight if you need to. <laughs> wow. But uh, he, he wrote extensively. He really did. And so there are books. Uh, but if you're looking for, for um, something to basically come from what uh, Suarez said, on creation, conservation, and concurrence, metaphysical disputations, 20 through 22. Uh, it's a translation by A.J. Fredoso, the same guy who actually translated the works by uh, Louis de Molina. And uh, it appears that uh, this has, that congruism actually held uh, better um, better acceptance early on than even the traditional Molinist idea. Again, the biggest difference is that he goes back and he, and he says that while God uses middle knowledge, God still gives a gift of faith working in that person's life, giving a gift of faith to the person uh, who he knows is going to respond. So it just adds another little step. Uh, and there are other details you could you could go into, but essentially that's the biggest difference between um, congruism and traditional Molinism is the whole aspect of effectual grace and whether God uses it or not. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because I heard a um, I was actually listening to a podcast today, um, Nate Sala and their um, their podcast uh, Wise Disciple, which formerly was. A clear lens, and they yeah. changed to wise disciple. Um, they had a guy on there that just wrote a book, and um, it is it sounds really interesting. But he's talking about how, and and this just goes to your um, our 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 view on Molinism and and such. Um, but he talks about how. He had a life-changing event that happened that made him start considering there's more to life than just this. And so he started in a pursuit to find out about God. Then he says very pointedly that when he started finding out about God, he realized that this God was so great and grand and holy and righteous that it actually scared him away. mm and he turned away from it and started basically turning away uh, and trying to just go back to living a normal life. But he said, you know, like uh, he basically referred to God as the hound of heaven. Oh, yeah. Remember that part. Yeah. So, so, so he talks about how after he turned away from God, after, after actually intentionally searching out for God, God then started pursuing him in such a way that all he just couldn't resist. He could not refute what God was was doing in his life. And he said, he said, I was actively searching, trying to find out God. I was looking at other religions. I was looking at all these other things. He said, so I was actively searching. And then God, I turned away and then God kept pursuing me. So that that's interesting because it it does fall into a little bit more of that uh, Molinistic mindset or I- idea. Yeah, and and so some people have accused Molinism of simply saying that God just looks down on the halls of heaven and and knows or, or the halls of history and knows who's going to respond, and he only he comes to that person. Well. C- Suarez seems to suggest that uh, God pursues every person. But God gives the gift of faith. So in other words, like this guy was talking about, Suarez is not necessarily going to be open to complete libertarian free will. 
he right. does believe in free will, but he's going to be more of a concurrent idea that uh, that, that free will falls within uh, that there are limitations to free libertarian freedom. So you can't choose your DNA, you can't choose to which parents you were born, things of this nature. So God puts you in specific time periods to bring you to faith. He knows who will respond. He knows who will not respond. But he's working, and it's not just simply that God says, hey, I'm God. Rather, is he moves in that person's life, and he brings forth a transformation in that person's life. He is actively pursuing coming into that person, providing them the gift of faith even to believe. I don't know that you necessarily have that with the, with the strict strictest version of Molinism, but you definitely have it in the congru- uh, con, um, congruist version of Molinism, so it's like a, it's like a Molinism 2.0, if you want to call it that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, by, and by the way, well, this well, this version of Molinism was a, was accepted unanimously uh, by the church, whereas traditional yeah. classic Molinism wasn't. So those are some of the fine tuned ideas, and there's some other things we could mention. Um, it, there was another thought that I had, but it left, so it must not have been important. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. So there you go, Jim, and uh, I'm sure Brian will probably write you back a little email and uh, be back in conversation with you. So it already done. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, there you go. So um, let's dig into the topic um, for today. And boy, it's um, a humdinger of a topic too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you certainly want to stay away from there. So. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> <laughs> so our our uh, our podcast for tonight, or our topic for tonight, is the um, I'm going to label it as the final countdown, but the common views on the doctrines of hell. And I think what's important is we realize we want to walk on this very sensitively, but we also want to walk on it with uh, or, or talk about this very practically. That's this. This is something that um, I, I'm. I personally am dealing with some people that I know that are um, really questioning God because of this, and so I think it's important that we spend time talking about this. And if it stirs up conversation, that's what we want to see. That's what we want. Yeah, there's a comment section on every one of our posts, both podcasts and, uh, well, if you're listening to the podcast app, on a podcasting app, you probably won't find it. But if you're on bellatorchristie.com, there is a section where you can leave comments. Um, we tried a different version. It didn't quite work quite well, so we went back to the mm-hmm. traditional version uh, of commenting without uh, without all the problems going through different things anyhow long story short leave us a comment send us an email Mm -hmm. we'd love to discuss this even more Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so let's get into the into the first question here um this one probably is going to be the longer of most of the questions but um let's get into it um so you have the four doctrine doctrinal views of hell can you go through those with us, Brian? Yeah, I'm going to give you four major ones. I'm going to give you a fifth, which is a which is an uh, uh, an alternate version of the second one, and so that'll make sense when we go through this. So the, I'm going to start with the uh, most uh, I don't want to say liberal view, but the I won't go from one extreme to the other. Um, we'll say that. Mm, okay. The the first view of uh, of hell is called universalism. 
And this is the idea that um, no one goes to hell, that everyone eventually goes to heaven, that whether it's on this side of eternity or it's on the other side of eternity, everyone's going to receive the free gift of God. And so so no one goes to hell in the form of universalism. And eventually everyone will be saved. And there are variants of this. Some people would say that there's no judgment, that that's just something invented by the church. Other people will say uh, that it may be a process going into eternity, which is kind of going into our second view. Uh, But eventually everyone will be saved and, and no one goes to hell. That that is a that is the universalist position. And by the way, Curtis, if there was a heresy that I wish were true, this would be the one because I don't think anyone I'd have to be concerned about a person who desires to see a per, another being go to hell because we're talking about eternity of torment and eternity without the presence, the personal presence of God, and you know, that's not something we should want to see anyone go through, mm-hmm. but. Um, Nonetheless, that's the first viewpoint, universalism. Mm-hmm. The second viewpoint is called conditional um, conditional punishment or conditional torment. Some people call it that. Some people call it purgatory, although it's not quite exactly like the, the purgatory view of the Catholic Church. In, in the conditional punishment, um, this view holds that, that uh, some people, those who reject Christ, will experience hell for a limited period of time until they repent. Uh, Maybe it'll cleanse them uh, of their sins during that period of time, or maybe it's going through the process of hell. They eventually say, they finally come to the point and they say, we don't want this anymore. We want to repent and come to you, God. God, save us. And at that moment, God spares them from from being in hell any moment further. Um, so that's the second view. It's kind of like the purgatory view that the Catholics, that uh, the Roman Catholic Church holds, but it's not quite like that because Catholicism holds that uh, there's a there's a heaven, there's a purgatory, a temporary cleansing of saints who may have left over residual sin that hasn't been atoned, and then uh, then, a, then the classic hell view. Uh, in addition to that. The third view is a fairly new view. We're going to talk about this a little bit later in the podcast called Annihilationism. This holds that uh, hell uh, is a uh, torment for individuals, but but instead of a purchase person being consciously tormented in hell for all eternity, they're simply destroyed. Hell destroys them, uh, mind, body, and soul, so that they no longer exist. So hell is kind of like a... Uh, Walking the Green Mile, if you've ever seen the movie Green Mile, where they're on the uh, death row, uh, hell's kind of like the electric chair, uh, so to speak. So so right now they'd be on death row up until the time of, of the Great White uh, Throne, and then after the Great White Throne Judgment, they would be thrown into the lake of fire, which would be like the electric chair at the time where they just become non-existent. And then, then there's the classical view called unconditional punishment, or, etor- or it's sometimes called eternal torment. And this is the view that uh, individuals uh, who are th- who are cast into hell, uh, or individuals who choose hell, let's say that, uh, mm-hmm. are people who consciously uh, reside in this hellish state for all eternity. And they don't they don't repent and they don't uh, they don't get out. It's a it's a uh, this is the traditional viewpoint that individuals are there. Mm-hmm. It's not a nice pleasant viewpoint. Let's be honest. Um, it's the viewpoint I hold in full disclosure. 
but it's not a pleasant viewpoint. I mean, it's not something we we would want to be true. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that as we go through this, there's some there's some uh, ways to look at this that really make sense, especially in the Orthodox version of this. But as for a, as far as a uh, an additional view, there's also I've come across this viewpoint is kind of a new agey there's kind of a new agey theme to it but it's called reincarnational universalism if you hold to the uh, the idea of reincarnation that our souls go through a process of different lives uh, so in other words we leave this life if we've we've done well we go to heaven if we don't do well we we come back in another form that's worse than the form we have now. That's the whole idea of, of, of uh, reincarnation. It, it really, in in the uh, Buddhist and Hinduist, in the Hindu form, really more Hindu than than uh, Buddhist form, because Hindus believe in God. Buddhist Buddhism is a little more agnostic. The idea there in Hinduism is that you continue to go through this process of reincarnation until you reach utopia, which is a perfect state with God. So it's really it really has a lot in common with the Hindu idea, the conception of heaven. And uh, so, in other words, you continue. If you reject God in this life, you're given another opportunity to reject God to to accept God in the next life, and that continues until every soul goes to God. Right. So, so those are the and different viewpoints. Yeah, that sure seems. And we're just gonna we're gonna try to stick to building a biblical case of what we see in scripture here sure um, and and so the reincarnation i don't see anything of that in scripture the, the only thing some people will say is that there is a passage in the scripture there was an idea that uh, that john the baptist was the was the prophet elijah come back and there was this notion even king herod had that when he saw jesus he thought that uh that that John the Baptist had come back in a different form. So now, does that prove reincarnation in Scripture? I don't think it does, but uh, there could have been some outlying beliefs in that. Again, I I, I think <laughs> that evidence is shady at best. But that's normally what people who advocate for reincarnation that's normally where they'll go to to defend mm-hmm. the assessment. I don't think that that necessarily. Uh, calls for a belief in reincarnation is reincarnation. Mm-hmm. I believe is that they're seeing someone in the spirit of Elijah come. Not necessarily that Elijah himself would come, but that the spirit of Elijah would come. Um, yeah. And you do have some people who believe and, that the two final witnesses in the Book of Revelation are Moses and and uh, Elijah come back, and so that kind of even has a little tinge of reincarnationist mindset but there again i don't think that that necessarily proves reincarnation right and could that be speaking of what their what their what the thoughts of the culture was at that time there may have been some fringe groups that that believe that mm-hmm. i think that mm-hmm. scripturally speaking is talking about someone who's come who will come who would be like Elijah, not necessarily would be Elijah, but someone mm-hmm. who would be like Elijah. So I think mm-hmm. there's a distinction. It's kind of like the Barinash of uh, of Daniel chapter seven. It says one like a son of man, uh, which right. is interesting. It's one who appears to be human, even though he approaches the throne the of the ancient of days. 
is someone who, who is like a human being, but is a divine mm. being. Mm. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting ready for my dissertation. So, the second question here, the Catholic Church holds the purgatory view. Historically, when did this book start? And what other religions hold that view? So, so there are some other, some people would hold. Now, let me let me answer the second part of that question first. So, some people would believe that purgatory would be comparable to the reincarnational universalism that we mentioned, uh, where a person who didn't receive, didn't have an established relationship with God, would come back perhaps in a lower life form, perhaps as in a worse situation, a worse lot than what they had in this life. So for them, um, that that second life would be like a purgatory until they repent and receive God. Uh, so there could be a case made in some Buddhist and, and uh, Hindu circles that there was something comparable to that. But as far as the church goes, the... The doctrine of purgatory was established according to French historian Jacques Legoff in the 12th century due to the emphases of suffrages on behalf of the dead uh, because there were these baptisms of the dead. Now, the Bible mentions baptism of the dead, but we don't know what it means. And so we certainly don't want to build a theological uh, doctrine off of that, uh, something that's very obscure. Um, what did they mean? I mean, we don't know. But uh, it became an official doctrine of the church at the councils of Lyon in 1274, the Ferrara Florence conferences in 1438 40, uh, through 1445, and the Council of Trent in 1545 through 1563. Now, having said that, I meant to have this pulled up. There are some references that some people hold that uh, not in the scripture itself, but more in the realm of the Apographa. Now, let me see if I can pull this up right quick. Let me do my magic here with Lagos. Well, if it will come up. Here we go. Magic with Lagos. All right. So let me find our text here. All right, so 2 Maccabees, we are rolling now. 2 Maccabees uh, chapter 12. Uh, let's take a look f- at 43 to save a little bit on time. 43 through 45. So it says, He also took up a collection man by man, and this is talking about Judas Maccabeus. He t- also took up a collection man by man to the amount of 2,000 drachmas of silver and sent it to Jerusalem to provide for a sin offering. In doing this, he acted very well and honorably, taking account of the resurrection for he was not expecting that those who had fallen would those who had fallen would rise again it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead but if he was looking to the splendid reward that is laid up for those who fall asleep in godliness it was a holy and pious thought therefore he made atonement for the dead so that they might be delivered from their sin so the whole idea mm. of, of doing this, making atonement, praying for the dead, praying for individuals who had gone on, uh, make, you know, doing these different things so that their time in this purgatory, or at least it was interpreted by the, by the church to be that way. Because remember, that in the Catholic Church, 
the Apographa is part of the accepted uh, right. canon. So right. this is viewed as the possibility that there may be some individuals who die who may not have uh, completely repented of all their sin or whatnot, and during eternity they may have to go through a period of of um, a period of, of of punishment for a little while to cleanse the rest of their sin. Uh, it's it's believed, you know, as as uh, um, Hebrews twelve twenty nine says that. Um, God is a consuming fire, so it's believed that, it, that the person saved through the passing of the fire. Uh, some people will look at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus um, to, to defend this. I don't see where that is, where that would necessarily prove the doctrine of purgatory. I think that proves that right. there's a separation between paradise and, and with God. You know, between in the intermediate state, paradise with God, and a, and a period of time. Um, in a hell, hellish state, an imprisoned state, uh, hell-like state until the time of the resurrection. But uh, I don't mm. think that necessarily that proves what they're they're trying to prove there. Now, I do think that in 1 Corinthians, I'm gonna, while I'm here, uh, I'll just go ahead and use the new Revised Standard Version while I've got it in hand uh, or got it on computer. Uh, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, here's where I do believe there is a misunderstanding uh, concerning purgatory. So this is verses 11 through 15, and this talks about the judgment seat of Christ. So in this text, Paul says, uh, well, let me go back to verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Someone else is building on it. Each builder must choose with care how to build on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one that has been laid. That foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, the work of each builder will become visible, for the day will disclose it. The day of judgment will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If it has been built on the foundation if what has been built on the foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward. If the work is burned up, the builder will suffer loss. The builder will be saved, but only as through fire. Okay. Now, I don't think this is talking about a person experiencing personal harm going through the fire because the focus is on the works that's done in the body, in the kingdom of God, or for the kingdom of God. So again, the works have been burnt up, not, not for instance, verse 15, the work is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but the builder will be saved, but as only through fire. So again, I don't think that's talking about purgatory. I think that's talking about the judgment seat of Christ, revealing the mm-hmm. things we've done in the body of Christ, and the work right. will be burnt up, not the person, him or herself. So, is that the Bema Seat Judgment or the Great White Throne Judgment? So there's a distinction that needs to be made between the Bema Seat Judgment and the Great White Throne Judgment. In my opinion, there's differences of opinion, but I don't believe that we will go to, I don't, we being believers in Christ, I don't believe we will go to the Great White Throne because I think the Great White Throne Judgment is only reserved for those who are not in Christ. 
the Bema seat is reserved for those who are in Christ. So we all will have to face God and give an account for what we do, whether in the body or out of the body. But the difference is, is that the Bema seat of Christ, we're doing this having our sins atoned. You know, having our sins atoned, we know we're forgiven. Our works will be displayed at that time. Uh, both mm-hmm. good and bad. The bad will be burned up. The the good will survive and be offered as a reward. Uh, mm-hmm. For those who are at the at the uh, great white throne judgment, that th- that's specifically for individuals who don't have Christ. So mm-hmm. the destination point. Because remember, now even Jesus tells us that the sheep will be separated from the goats. Sheep representing right. believers, goats representing those who are unbelievers. So right. it means that the the judgment goes in two different directions with the two different individuals or two different categories of people yeah yeah interesting so what views what view does the mainline orthodox church hold to so by this view we're talking about greek and russian orthodox churches Mm -hmm. they hold it's it's important to understand that the orthodox church holds a greater metaphysical emphasis than necessarily the Western church does. Mm. They hold more of a focus on mystery. And interestingly, the Orthodox church has much more in common with the Protestant church than necessarily even the the Catholic church does, even though the, the Protestant church is a was given birth by the Catholic Church. We all came from the Catholic Church. Yeah, okay. You know, even though that's the case, it's intriguing to see just how similar, in some aspects, the the, the Orthodox Church is to Protestantism in some ways. Now, they're more liturgical. Their worship services are far more like Catholicism than Protestant Church services are. Um, And they do hold aspects that are very comparable to Catholicism. But Orthodoxy uh, holds um, this, this metaphysical belief concerning heaven and hell. They believe that the two places exist not just as, and they're not, they don't deny that there are physical places, but they believe that they're more like states of being. Because God is rejected in this life, it's held, that the unbeliever continuously rejects God in eternity. Therefore, as Metro, as a Orthodox teacher Metropolitan Callistos Ware states, and I quote, if the doors of hell are locked in eternity, they are locked from the inside. It's not mm-hmm. that they're locked from the outside that God keeps them from going out. They're mm-hmm. locked from the inside in that they choose to continuously reject God. And it seemed like C.S. Lewis held a similar viewpoint, even though now he, yeah. he had some he had some beliefs that may be comparable somewhat to annihilationism, but but the belief is still that uh, even if he didn't, uh, that he still held a belief that uh, people choose to, even in eternity, stay in hell for eternity. Mm-hmm. And so God desires, and, and it, is, it is held you know, very much so in the Orthodox Church, that God desires all people to be saved. However, some create their own hell and remain there because of their pride. And this really is appealing, I think, to consider that, uh, that this eternal hell may be not that God's attempting to punish them, but that a person has rejected the personal presence of God, has rejected the salvation given to them by Christ 
to the point that they have made their own personal hell for themselves. Right. I think there's a lot of power in that point of view. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, um, there's a famous picture that's painted and, um, it's, it's Jesus knocking on a door. Yeah. And, uh, the controversy was that the people, um, that were first criticizing the painting were, were stating, um, yeah, this is all great and what great artwork it is, but you're missing one thing. There's no door handle, and the and the artist stated, and I and I'm paraphrasing, but this whole thing, but um, the the artist stated something to the effect that that's intentional mm-hmm. because hell is the the door, not hell, but the door is is uh, the the door is locked from the inside. Mm-hmm. And so, I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of truth to that statement. So it may very well be. Right. That as weird as it may sound, I think there is a tr- some some truth to that. That well, that I don't think it's that weird, um, Brian. I think I think when you stated that people are going to be there um, and and it's going to be locked from the inside, I, I I could see that and I can understand that because um, if. If a person is on this earth and they completely fully reject God intentionally, would it not be would it be loving for that God to grab them and say even though you didn't want me on earth, I'm just going to take you with me in heaven. Yeah, so in that case Meaning, that case God's heaven would yeah. be their personal hell. Correct. Yeah, exactly. So um I can I can understand that point of the, from the Orthodox Church a little bit more. Yeah, there's a lot of things from the Orthodox Church that I think are very fascinating, uh, and and again that that really coincide with uh, with even Protestant Christianity. Uh, but but mm-hmm. I really appreciate the, for for the Orthodox Church. You know they they many people I've heard would say yeah they believe in God's sovereignty, but yeah they also believe in human freedom. They don't know how it works, but they accept it as a mystery because they're they're much more open to mysteries. <laughs> they're much more open Give to mysteries. High five for that one. Yeah, they're much more open to mystery in um, in the North, in the Eastern Church than necessarily we in the Western Church are because we want to know, we want to have it down pat, we want to have the facts and figures. They are much more spiritually inclined to to uh, mm. to make it much more about the relationship. And yeah, they're focused mm-hmm. on doctrine. I'm I'm not saying that, but it's much more about relationship in the Orthodox Church. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, was there any more you wanted to add to that one? That's pretty much about it. I mean, it's, essentially, that's the viewpoint. Now, some people may hold; they may take it that well. Eventually, maybe people will repent, which would be more of a conditional uh, torment view. But it seems like the mainstream uh, viewpoint of orthodoxy is. Mm-hmm. That, uh, that the hell is eternal, but it's not that God's keeping them there. It's because that they've locked the doors from the inside and not from the out. That's that's powerful. Yeah, I think so too. So, uh, re- regarding the universalism view, <clears throat> why is the modern church leaning more to that? You you know, I don't have any concrete evidence to suggest that the church is necessarily moving into that position, uh, but it does seem that more and more people are 
opening up to, or, or, or becoming more open to the position uh, than, than what they previously were. were. It'd be interesting mm-hmm. if we had some hardcore statistics to see just, you know, if we took a, a viewpoint in, like, uh, if we were able to go back and see where people stood 20 years ago and that on the mm-hmm. viewpoint of hell and see where people are now, that would be a compelling study and one I'd love to, to see if that data is out there, if that data exists. Um, hell is not a pleasant thought. To be honest, uh, eternal torment is not a compelling <laughs> viewpoint. Uh, it's not something that we would enjoy. I mean, if there's a person out there who would take enjoyment from seeing someone spending eternity in hell, I would really have to question whether or not their heart is really right with God. Uh, because I don't think that, as, as the scripture we read, I don't even think it's God's intention or nor his desire to see people go to hell. But it's the 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 willful rebellion against God that leads a person there. Right. Um, and by the way, that's one thing the Orthodox Church has mentioned. Some of the advocates for the Orthodox Church have said that that they believe that the Western Church has has pushed too strongly the viewpoint that God wants to condemn people. In their viewpoint, God wants to save people, and but God gives the pe- person the freedom to reject him and to lock the doors of hell from the inside um Mm -hmm. so i mean we need to be concerned you know that that people are going there and it's out of heart of compassion we need to try to share the gospel to 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 see people go to heaven that should be our desire to see people go to heaven and not to hell so i think that's that's one of the reasons now obviously we're living in a time where biblical doctrine and or you know and orthodox beliefs are are held with much more suspicion than they were in times past. So um, for some, it's just easier to just say, well, everybody is eventually going to be saved rather than saying there may be some people who spend an eternity in this mm-hmm. um, this horrible place. So, I mean, again, and even for myself, I could say if there was a heresy that I wish were true, I would wish that universalism was true because I wouldn't want to see anyone. I mean, even as awful as some people have been, um, I would probably want to see something more along the lines of a conditional hell, where a person would eventually repent and you know come to their senses and repent and be saved. But the problem is, is we just don't see any biblical evidence that that's the case. Yeah. Yeah, and and universalism. I find a I find as in you, I agree with that, but I also ask the question when when it comes up, I have to ask the question, then what was the cross for? Exactly. What, what was the cross for then? Now some uh, some universalists would argue, and just just to be fair coming from their perspective, some universalists would argue that the cross was necessary to bring all people. To, to, to salvation they would argue some universalists would say that the cross made it made heaven possible for everyone um, because of the act if it was done for everyone for all times then it was the cross that allowed that to happen uh, that would be the position that some I don't know if you could call any universalism conservative in the, in the least sense but if there were some who would hold more to the idea of atonement I think I think they would probably come across some some form of that viewpoint. I think that's what Rob Bell does in his book Love Wins. 
that uh, mm-hmm. the, the cross overcame the sinful nature, in his opinion, his perspective, bringing everyone to eventually come to that point of heaven to be saved. But again, the, the question is, is does the Bible confirm that viewpoint? Does the biblical data right. suggest that? And from right. what I've studied, I, I just don't see that it does. I wish right. that it did, but I just don't yeah. see that it does. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, so thinking about William Lang Craig's um, argument um, for the atonement, um, for the atoning work of Christ, and he he does talk about the difference between Christus Victor and and the atonement, the you know the atoning work of of Christ. It was Christus and, Victor from Anselm of Canterbury. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. I wasn't sure, but I was thinking that was the case. Yeah, but he talks about <clears throat> how you know um, that it's interesting to hear his talk about it because. He talks about how the atonement not only did it do the work for us to enter uh, enter into relationship with Christ and and be to heaven, but it also um, it also literally paid for the 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 work paid for the paid for the sins. So um, he you know. The two, be- I think, I think you can hold to both views: the Christus Victor and the atoning work, and and I think it's somewhere between. Yes, it's both. <laughs> I, I think <laughs> you're you absolutely right. I, whenever I mean, it's been a while since I've gone through a deep study of of the atonement, uh, but I remember going through it in some theology classes previously, thinking that very thing that it would that you would it would seem like it would be a combination of both the classical you know atonement that viewpoints that we find as well as the Christus Victor uh, that we find mm-hmm. that Anselm gives us as well mhm yeah and i i i think that i think that's uh it, that's an interesting take and if people ever wanted to go and find it you could find that on uh, reasonable faith on their website there and you can find all the stuff from 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 William Lim Craig there. Um, that sounds like it may be another good podcast for us to do here at Bellator yeah, Christie sometime. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's good stuff. Um so why is annihilationism becoming so popular and when did the view really come into the church? Well here again let me take the um let me take well. Let me take the first section. Why is it becoming popular? I think it's becoming popular for the very same reason that um, that universalism is. I think with annihilationism, mm-hmm. that that, it, that annihilationists realize that there are reasons to believe in this this place that is opposed to heaven. Um, and so they don't deny the existence of a hell, but in their perspective, it is that uh, that people don't survive there for all eternity, that they're just burned up. They're annihilated, as the name suggests, and that they are done away with. Uh, and, and, you know, there are some passages of Scripture that uh, that are used to defend this. Matthew 10, 28, where Jesus says that God is able to kill both body and soul in, in, in hell. Uh, some people would argue that uh, that, that that suggests that uh, that viewpoint. Uh, so Matthew, uh, let me pull it up here. Matthew uh, thirteen, uh, verse forty. 
says, Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather from his kingdom all who call sin, those are guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them in the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so in this in this perspective, they believe that uh, uh, that the person is burned up and, and is non, non-existent. Um Ignatius, some some annihilationists will say that Justin Martyr and Ignatius make the argument early on in the church's history that uh, without God, nothing could, could exist, and that if God took His hands off anyone, that they would cease to exist. But I don't think that they are they are presenting a case for annihilationism as such. I think they're just simply showing the theological perspective that God is the one who holds all things together. Uh, for right. his for his purpose, uh, that's not necessarily talking about the eternal nature of the soul. Because I'm pretty sure with Ignatius and, and Justin Martyr both that they believe in the immortality of soul of the soul. And I know Justin Martyr does, so I don't think that 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 argument is very strong. But now, if you want to see the the uh, a distinct beginning point for annihilationism, then you need to go to the mid 1800s with a movement that began with William Miller and the Adventist movement. Um, the mm-hmm. Seventh-day Adventists, they are very much into annihilationism. Um, even, um, we were talking about this amazing facts ministry, uh, that they are right. Adventist, and they don't believe in the, uh, they believe in something like soul sleep, I think. that uh, yeah. Is it soul sleep, or is it uh, soul yeah. death, or yeah, something like that? Well, no, it's soul sleep until until the end of time, yes, and then... So a person just, just becomes non-existent at that. Well, period. no, no, it's soul sleep. Like once you die, you're soul oh, sleep oh, yeah. until 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 the resurrection or Christ, you know, comes back, and then uh, and then and then everything is raised from that point. Right. So, yeah. So um, so a person doesn't yeah, die necessarily; they just go to sleep. Right. Right. I know. When I heard that. My like I said last night. I said my head spun like a eagle that heard a whistle it was like what <laughs> but, but you know that in the scriptures but okay yeah well i'm right to, well and see here's the problem and i had a discussion with a gentleman about this years ago uh because he held a similar perspective uh the, the whole concept when the bible talks about those who are asleep in christ it's taken literally but that is a metaphorical idiom used to refer to the death of an individual. So when we say right. those who are asleep in Christ, we're not saying that they're unconscious. We're not saying that they don't have a spiritual existence. That's not what the Bible is saying. They're saying that their body is asleep, not the soul, but their body is asleep in anticipation that one day it will be revived and reanimated and resurrected into a brand new form. So it's not talking about the soul sleeping it's talking about the body itself is, is seen as a, in a state of sleep, not the soul, the body, the, in the anticipation that it will, it will one day be raised. But now right. going back to the um, the, the uh, belief of annihilationism, this is actually held by numerous individuals, Anglican, uh, not only the Adventists, but Jehovah Witnesses, Anglican John Stott. The Church of Christ mm-hmm. elder now Church of Christ doesn't hold annihilationism, but one of their elders, John, Edward Fudge, does. Clark Pinnock, I was surprised to hear that, and even even some people believe even C.S. Lewis may have held to a a, a version of annihilationism. So um, 
you know, and I've heard different things about C.S. Lewis. So everybody wants C.S. Lewis to be on their side. It's, it appears, but but nonetheless, yeah. th- these are some individuals that held to the viewpoint of annihilationism. It really got its upstart in the mid eighteen hundreds. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I, you know, um, I can see where some of that would be um, ideal or beneficial. Um, as far as a thought to um, maybe get rid of the idea of hell so so deeply, but I've got I've got two kind of kind of little questions with that. If we are if if we are made in the image of God, and God were to annihilate us, what does that say about Him? That's a great question. I think we were even talking about this off the podcast. Um, you know, if, if and this is a question I have, and I don't have an answer for it. It's just a mm-hmm. question that I have is if our spirit, you know, the Bible tells us that our spirit is the breath of God. You know, God breathed into us. The Holy Spirit we know is an eternal being, uh, you know, presence being. If our if our spirit is God's breath unto us, not saying that we're God or anything like that, not even close. But it, right. if that's what causes, if that is part of what makes us the in the, the Imago Day, is that even something that can be destroyed? I don't know. That's just a question I've had in my mind as we right. Through and this. that was my question. Yeah, it's my yeah. And I thought, I thought when you asked that question, I was asking the same question at the same time. I'm like, what about that? You know. Yeah. So, it it um, I think there's probably those endless questions that we could come up with uh, with this. Well, and Curtis, I'm glad you mentioned that because I found something that is block a blockbuster piece of information studying through this, mm. um, and I want to share this with you right quick. You hear a lot of people who argue for annihilationism or argue for soul sleep that they'll say that this is a Greek thought and not a Hebrew thought. This is not a Jewish thought. That Jews of the first century did not believe in the immortality of the soul. They did not believe in in the continual existence. Well, listen to what Josephus, the historian of the first century, says about the Pharisees. Now, keep in mind, Jesus had more in common with the Pharisees than he had with any other denomination of Judaism. This is what Josephus says. Now, for the Pharisees, they live in... Um, let's see, let me go on down here where they... Uh, they pay a respect to such as are in years, nor are they so bold as to contradict them in anything that they have introduced. And when they determine that all things are done by fate, they do not take away the freedom of men as acting as they see fit. So there again, they believe in the sovereignty of God. They also believe in the freedom of man. Since their notion is that it hath pleased God to make a temperament whereby what he wills is done, but so that the will of men can act virtuously or viciously. They also believe that souls have an immortal vigor in them and that under the earth there will be rewards or punishments according as they have lived virtuously or viciously in this life and the latter are to be detained in an everlasting prison, but that the former still have the power to revive and live again on account of which doctrines they are 
able greatly to persuade the body of the people, and whatsoever they do about divine worship, prayers, and sacrifices, they performed them according to their direction, insomuch that the cities gave great attestations to them on account of their entire virtuous conduct, both in the actions of their lives and in their discourses also. They believed in the eternal nature of the soul, and that those who mm-hmm. acted viciously would go to this everlasting prison, and that those who acted virtually would go into this paradise and would be raised on the last day. This is not... The idea of the immortality of the soul is not a Greek idea only. It was found right. in Judaism. Right. And go back to your point that you were talking about soul sleep or you know until the end of time that would that potentially could be debunked by exactly what you're saying plus what jesus said to the thief on the cross absolutely yeah yeah and i was trying to look through this i mean because uh i mean he talks about have the power to revive and live again but they're talking about the the soul again they believe in the immortal immortal nature of the soul so those who those who deny God, who live viciously, they go to everlasting prison. Those who live virtuously according to the ways of God uh, will live in this paradise form. Jesus shows this in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and then will mm-hmm. eventually ri- revive and live again. Interesting. So what would the what would the difference be between conditionalism and the Hindu reincarnation? Just, just essentially, very, very quickly on this one. This is kind of easy yep, to answer. Yep. Um, essentially, the the focus is on how it's done in conditional, uh, how repentance is brought forth in conditional punishment. A person spends uh, an amount of time briefly in hell. Um, and then they repent of their sins, and and they don't come back in another life. They they repent of their sins, mm-hmm. and then they they go to heaven. Uh, while after being in this state of torment, with this new age version, they keep going through different lives. So it's not like a there's a a hell place of hell. It's like they keep going through these different lives until they eventually repent and turn to God and then at that point they go to heaven and then the cycle of going through these different births stop. So that's dis- that's the distinction between the two viewpoints there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So getting down to our last question here, um, and it's a double stack here. Um, so which view is the most dangerous or is there more than one? Well, I, I, I'll just answer this in this way. If you believe that everyone goes to heaven, and if you or if you believe that, I, I would there, I would just say if you believe that everyone goes to heaven, you better have some doggone good reasons for believing it. Um. Because if you if there aren't and if there is the possibility that people could go to hell, then you are really playing Russian roulette with your eternal soul, quite frankly, or with your eternal destiny. Um, mm-hmm. So so the question is, do we want to base our eternal destiny on nice opinions that we may have that make us feel better about ourselves? Or from the teachings that of, of a man who have been who has been verified 
by defeating death itself, conquer death, come back from eternity in a brand new state, and offers that to us who also taught Mm -hmm. that there was these two eternal states, one in heaven and one in hell. There are good reasons for believing. And this actually goes back to the very first thing we were talking about, about the minimal facts argument. If Jesus rose from the dead, if he literally rose from the dead, then everything Jesus said and did about God and eternity is verified. It has the Father's stamp of approval on his life, his message and teachings. So... (laughs) You better have some very good evidence to believe this, otherwise, um, you may you're going be Jesus. you're going against Jesus's teachings, and you may actually be leading people away from Christ and away from heaven. And do you really mm-hmm. want that on your? <laughs> do you really want that on your conscience for all eternity? The, mm-hmm. Realizing that if someone's coming to Christ, saying, "Oh, you don't have to come to Christ. You don't have to." You don't have to repent of your sins. You don't have to do these things because everyone's going to go to heaven anyhow. Mm-hmm. That's very, very dangerous. And it can lead individuals uh, away from Christ, away from repenting of their sins coming to Christ, and can actually lead people to heaven. It gives a false sense of security is what it does. Right. 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 Uh, I guess I I hold in in this very um i hold very tightly to what the scripture says and to what jesus verified with what he taught mm-hmm. um there were very there's quite a few pictures in the scriptures pointing that there is two separate places um and and both of those separate places are eternal and that's and that's I guess that's what um as far as scripturally that's what I hold to um you know um some of the others some of the other stuff that's in there conditionalism I, I don't see it um you know I, it's it's really hard for me to accept the idea that you can build a doctrine um a, a doctrine to teach people from off of very minimal proofs in the scripture I or agree. very vague um, sideline um, scriptures where we're taught hermeneutically to always let the greater verify the lesser mm-hmm. rather than the lesser verify. Um, so, as we as we get, dig through that, there are some biblical views that we see bubble to the surface, and um, as uncomfortable as it is, I do think it was taught. Um, I do think it was taught by Jesus. Well, and 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 the last point I want to make, Curtis, is is if you go back and use Pascal's wager with this, it would be mm-hmm. better for us to prepare that there is a hell and find out that everybody goes to heaven than to believe that everyone goes to heaven and find out that many people went to hell because of our Mm -hmm. mistake. So I would rather wage on the side of the traditional understanding of heaven and hell 
and lead people to a right relationship with Christ than to have it over on my head, on my shoulders, uh, that that I gave people a false doctrine, gave them a false hope that um, when they didn't really have that hope in hand, when they didn't really have that salvation in hand. So again, I would rather believe as if there is a hell and find out that everyone goes to heaven than to live believing that there is no hell uh, or that everyone goes to heaven to find that I led some people to hell. I, I, th- I think it's just a very dangerous concept that we're doing. And unfortunately, Curtis, we're seeing a lot, a lot of even conservative Christians. It's even getting into the apologetic world of individuals holding to these alternate viewpoints. Annihilationism, I don't think it is as dangerous as, uh, you know, as... Uh, as as universalism conditional salvation oh that would be nice if that's true you know a person eventually comes to to repent of their sins in eternity but universal universalism itself i mean again i wished it were true but the reason i'm not a universalist is because i take the statements and teachings of jesus very seriously yeah there yeah yeah very much so well folks it's been good we here at Bellator Christi want to thank you for spending time together with us, and we value that time. Our prayers that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and is a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christi podcast, and until next time, Brian and I say, Soldier on, friends. listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christi. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Do you have a question about the Bible, theology, or apologetics that you've always wanted to ask but never felt comfortable asking? If so, we want to encourage you to head over to bellatorchristie.com and submit your question on the Submit a Question link. Your question will be reviewed and may be featured on a future article or podcast. Remember, the only dumb question is the one unasked. So go over to bellatorchristie.com now and submit your question.